sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. Do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories everybody. You know how to get in the game? Send us an email. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. This one comes from John. Hello, I've recently discovered the podcast. I really enjoy it. And I thought of this local legend that could make a great show. Stoll, Kansas is a small town, a wide spot in the road. What, you're laughing. Do you know Stoll, Kansas? Yeah, it's such a great story. It's so, so fun. It's just west of Lawrence, he says. For folks who yes. don't know Kansas, I have friends who have lived in and around Lawrence. Uh, Stoll was basically an intersection with a few buildings. One was a fishing store. Uh, and then there was a room, a, a one-room church that was basically a few uh, barely standing walls and a few graves. Growing up in Kansas City, everybody knew this story, that Stoll was one of the seven gateways to hell. The legend is that the cure wouldn't play in Kansas City because Robert Smith wouldn't fly over it or come near it. Is there any truth to that? Signed, John. Yeah. This shit is so wild. wild. This is wild. So what do you what do you know about this? Have you, have you been there? The, uh, there's stuff we're going to talk about to where I is how I'm familiar with Stull, Kansas. We're going to talk about it a little later. And and I think my first ever Kansas ever experience ever um, was that I lived in Denver and we drove all, we rented a car and drove to Lawrence to KU to see super drag. And maybe we were doing things on the way in that <laughs> rental car that we shouldn't have been doing. And then we got to campus and it was a dry campus. And that's Ooh. when I found out the eighth gateway to hell was KU's <laughs> campus. But I also found out that at the time, this is 20 years ago, that Lawrence, Lawrence had a strip club, just like in the Sopranos called the Bada Bing. <laughs> <Sorry to count. laughs> <laughs> what is the drive from Denver to Lawrence? That seems like a long way. It's it's eight hours, dude. That's why it was the eighth, like the eighth gateway to hell. Because oh we God. were out of our brains on goofballs when we got there. And, and so you couldn't wash and, it down with and anything. we yelled yeah. and we yelled Freebird at the band and they totally played it. That's how that's that's how goofballs you hell. were. Yeah, there I got you. I got you. Dry yeah. camp is hilarious. So, okay. So what John sets us up with is pretty perfect. He describes this place. And if you go look and there's stuff in the show notes, that is, he describes it, right? There's not much there. There's plenty of pictures and uh, it, it is a cemetery and a church and the there's church is cemetery. Yeah. And, and so the cemetery yeah. is important because it's a big part of the story. Uh, the church has mostly been destroyed. And the, the idea is that the devil shows up from time to time in the cemetery and that there is a stairwell to hell that opens up like around Halloween, like a literal stairwell in the basement of this church. And through the years, there's all these stories that have been passed around, right? Like stories about vehicles moving by themselves and strange winds right. blowing the wrong direction and spirits returning from the grave and, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And and since John has given this question that we're going to talk about with everybody, how far back do these rumors go? Well, pretty far, right? Pretty far. The town itself looks like it dates back into the mid 1800s, late 1800s, maybe. And it was it used to be called Deer Creek, but which is like a so, totally normal name. But there was a guy named Sylvester Stahl who opened a post office, and you know, I guess finagled the naming rights because he was. <laughs> if you own the post Mr. office, Stoll. you could just yeah. say where it's coming from and going to, right? You're just like, oh, this mm-hmm. is Stoll, Kansas now. And rumors are rumors, I guess. So I think this was sort of like supernatural bumbling that people just always 
had around for some extent, you know, to some extent. But the wider world started hearing about this rumor like 50 years ago. Let's tell everybody. Well, you already mentioned <laughs> the University of Kansas uh, is not yeah. far away. And apparently there was this journalism professor there whose name was Gary Mason. And he was really into this idea of Stoll and what he had heard about it. And at some point, I guess because he talked about it all the time in class or just around campus, I don't know if he was just a wackadoodle or what, but somebody like heard him and was like, okay, I have to have a certain number of stories this week anyway. I might as well just interview this guy about Stoll. Yeah. And most of the things that you're going to read about this, that the story that John has brought to us is from a November 1974 edition of the student newspaper of the University of Kansas to a story written by a student named, is it Jan Pinner? Yeah. You think it's it's J-A-I-N. So I have to say, if this is true, kudos to the student newspaper for knowing how to market themselves. Because <laughs> like, I was on staff at the University of Arkansas student newspaper in the early 2000s, and no contribution that I was a part of in terms of reporting, real or fake, seemed to keep anybody talking for more than 50 minutes, let alone 50 yeah. years. But this has been going on for 50 freaking years. Brian, you know, I never was in the newspaper. Like, I never worked with the newspaper, but I worked in college radio, and then we would talk to like a reporter at the newspaper about whatever it was. And then no matter what, somehow the story would end up having a negative slant. Like it was <laughs> we like called the idiots at the, the radio station and they said like, this. Yeah. It's completely unlistenable, but Mark Murdoch <laughs> program director says, yeah, right. Okay, you so lefty, crazy journalist buttholes. Like, Oh, that's me. I, Sorry. I said, I never, used the paper or never caused a stir with the paper. That's not actually true. So I was on the editorial board and had a column like my last year or two. And I started to realize that I could use this column to like just crusade for things. And so at one point I remember I wrote a scathing piece about the local grocery store that had expired items on the shelves. <laughs> oh my Oh my God, Meemaw. Did you really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. And then one time the the health center like I was complaining about the level of care that they gave me because like I went in, you know, and I was like, had some adenoid virus. And my face is all messed up and my eyes are all swollen. And they're like, Oh yeah, I don't know. You know? And so I ended up having to go somewhere else. And so I wrote this piece about like, why do we even have this stupid healthcare center? If it's not going to do anything. Well, so I, I didn't think anybody read this. Right. And then like 30 minutes into the day, it's like eight 30 in the morning after this paper is at the stands and I get a call and I'm like, what number is this? And I pick it up and <laughs> I don't know how they got my cell phone number. But it's the freaking like press person for the university. <laughs> it's like I'm calling from from the university health center, and I was like, I just hung up. <laughs> <laughs> was not prepared for that, and I was not a good student journalist, apparently. Yes, <laughs> hang up, hang up. It's a real Gonzo journalism I was doing. Okay, so back. It is. It is, it is Gonzo. <laughs> hang up, hang up. Pink caller. So <laughs> the basic rumor is about. Stole is this okay? Thanks for joining us, everybody. This is an awesome story. Okay, ready? According to the legend, in 1850, you might know him as the devil, the devil. or Mephiscopheles, whatever you call him, and a witch. They get together, they bang, they have a baby. Um, however, the birth was not successful, right? And so the those, child those, died. Listen, those mortal and supernatural bangings they they never lead <laughs> productive yeah fruit. yeah so the child died and was buried in the cemetery and so the devil being somewhat sentimental would visit the cemetery <laughs> two nights a year 
Halloween, of course, because he's already out doing stuff and scaring <laughs> kids and TPing the biology teacher from middle school who was such a jerk to him when they made fun of him. You're never going to freak people out, devil. Uh, and the spring equinox, which seems to be diametrically opposed in every way possible from there. Anyway, this was to pay respects to the dead devil child. So a quote from the article by the University Daily Kansas. I want you States. to explain supernatural things to me all the time. That's going to be a spin-off <laughs> podcast where you just tell me and now here's the story of Frankenstein as told to you by Mark Murdoch. <laughs> so they took a bunch of parts of a guy, they put him together and he sang that song by Taco putting on the Ritz from 83. Remember that one? Okay, so here's the quote from the paper. I want to do it. It sounds like a great idea, honestly. I think people will listen. (laughs) I can't stop thinking about it. Okay, (laughs) here's the quote. This graveyard is one of the two places where the devil appears in person twice a year. That's a quote from that original article in 74. The old church was set to have a set of stairs that descend into the gates of hell. And that's how the devil's able to, to come and go. It's <laughs> like his express stops. He that's needs, how he's able to go to the cemetery. Stairs. He needs stairs. Yes. Can you imagine the devil like hits the stairs and it's like, these stairs are taking express stop to the cemetery. Install. <laughs> so there is this piece in the show notes that uh, we're pulling some info from for this. And it, it is actually a pretty interesting piece because it was written about the effects that a rumor like this has on an area that otherwise would be nondescript, right? So this is like basically yeah. a blink and you miss it gas station town. And now people know about it because this this dumb rumor got circulating in the 70s. And so and this article is like talking about how that can be a really negative thing in a lot of ways. And I, I, that's a pretty interesting concept. And I grew up in a part of the country that about 15 miles up the road from me, I don't know if we've, we've talked about this at all in any podcast, and it's called Chapel Hill, Tennessee, home of the Chapel Hill Light, where apparently a man who worked on the railroad was walking around the railroad and something happened, like the train like hit the, the gas or whatever, and it ran over him. And at night, you can go to the train tracks and you can see the lantern going back and forth. And it's his ghost Ooh. looking for his head. <laughs> so, so people go out to the train tracks to go look. To see if they can see, it's called the Chapel Hill Light. Are you auditioning for your new Supernatural Stories podcast? <laughs> I think, I think that we've got something here. I think that we just we we don't pivot. It's just the extra side hustle where we talk about creepy stuff. Because man, people love that murder and creepy stuff. That's I hear true. they do. That's anyway. true. That could really take us to the next level. All right, you know what they you know what they also need focus. And let's <laughs> let me give that for our. Our audience. So here's more from the piece. After the article is released, the story, obviously, it's early 70s, it spread like wildfire. Students made trips to the cemetery to get their own like taste of this paranormal happenings. And, and then the number of students visiting started to get, you know, quite a bit. And by Halloween of 1999, there were like 500 people visiting. However, those students visiting found that 
the devil didn't show up because I guess the <laughs> stairs were closed and they decided to make their own quote unquote fun. They pushed over tombstones and they stole them for their dorms. They littered the cemetery with beer cans and they vandalized the property. So the local community was obviously furious. These kids being ridiculous and they wanted to fight back because their loved ones graves were being vandalized and destroyed. So the local authorities started handing out fines for trespassing and put a chain link fence around the, the cemetery to keep the students from trespassing. The University Daily Kansan also posted an article in 1990 discussing the fines and saying the real evil is the <laughs> vandalism that happens in our cemetery. Did you ever steal something stupid to put in your dorm room? Okay. Um, so um, a road sign that had my name on it, um, a stop sign that my mom helped me steal. Oh my God. Of, uh, she like stopped. So I was like, stop here. And like, she stopped and I just threw it in the back of the Cadillac. And I took that to college with me. My sophomore roomie, Scott, I'm sorry. I just outed you, buddy. He like dropped out of school. And then one day I came home from class and he had taken all the stuff from the student center or some other place. I think I know what it was. And it looked like all of a sudden we were a point of or my dorm room was a point of sale for like where you could buy popcorn and Cokes and and like beer and sandwiches. What was his motivation that. for stealing that stuff? Oh, I remember he had a job and he quit or got fired. And like his last thing was, I'm going to take all the sides and put it in the dorm room. Yes. So I had a dorm room that had all kinds of contraband in it that were signs. And nobody found just it? signs. Nobody just came in and was like, why the hell do you have all these signs? Uh, no. I mean, they didn't <laughs> care that people were doing other stuff in the dorm room either. Why they care about signs? Uh, fair enough. But anyway, yeah, fair enough. No. That's true. I, I feel like you're right. We, If this was a spooky pod, we'd be in good shape. But typically, we're here to answer questions about rock and roll. So regardless of the rumors about Stoll, the query is more specifically about the effect these rumors may have had on music. The legend is that The Cure wouldn't play in K Kansas City because Robert wouldn't fly over it or come near it. Is there any truth to that? Now, so do you remember how we came up with this term like a long time ago on the show where I coined template rumors, quote unquote, yeah. the idea that like sometimes there are these rumors that get attached to multiple people at different times in different cities. I, I love those stories about like the they don't play here no more because that happened. And like that's like a really common oh, thing. Yeah, that is a good one. And, and I remember being living in Colorado and someone saying, you know, Radiohead won't play in Denver anymore because all their gear got ripped off at this Hyatt that was down. Like, I don't think that story was ever true, <laughs> you know, but like, what a great story. There was the whole story about how like fuel had been banned from the University of Arkansas campus because they like encouraged people to throw folding chairs or something. Which also is like something I've heard more than once, right? About bands being like too aggressive or whatever with their fans. I don't know if that was ever true or not. Also, Fuel shouts. I don't think I've ever said the name of that band on this show before. First time. In Absolutely. my hands, in my hands, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I actually found in looking at this that there is a bit of a 
template rumor for superstitiously avoiding the wider area of Kansas due to the location of Stoll. About the about the seventh the seventh gate of hell. This yeah, is about the seventh story. gate of hell. It is sort of common to hear these stories about people who are like, I wouldn't go to this place because it's close to some sort of supernatural spot. But there are mentions of the cure canceling a date at some point in their career because of proximity to Stoll, but I can't find any meat on that bone. Like I looked for a long time and I've we've been working on this on the side for a long time and I've, I've got nothing. But uh, I mean, just like no deeper attributions, no original sources, just people saying there's this rumor that the cure wouldn't play in Stoll because or wouldn't play in Kansas City because of Stoll. But there's no like real evidence that that was true. But but it came from something. I think it came from something. And that led me right. to start looking around for other rumors about people not going to Kansas City or parts of Kansas because of Stoll. Re- read this piece from the show notes. Absolutely. When Count Chocula, I'm sorry, when Pope John Paul II visited Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado for World Youth Day in 1993, a rumor surfaced about his sphere of Stull, Kansas, the seventh gate of hell. The urban legend was cited a Time Magazine article stating that Pope John Paul II requested that his plane fly far around that section of Kansas because he did not want to fly over, quote, unholy unquote round of course this article never existed right there is no time article about this and the pope's plane would not have had to go anywhere near kansas during its flight but it's a great story (laughs) and i think that's why i think it's that story that gets mixed up with these other stories how do you think that uh i mean the pope didn't the pope john paul ii specifically Never like guessed it on a cure record. So how did this? How did this ever? How did these things? How did these two things are not like each other? Like how did they get together and make it? That's the lost track. That's like the if you get the new uh, vinyl edition of Galore, there's an extra track at the end where John Paul II's just like reading an incantation. Uh, I don't know. Or instead of why can't why instead of why can't I be you? It's why can't I be? It's like a scary. Halloween song. <laughs> uh, Boy, that's I, it, silly. That's listen, a dad. Listen. That's a stupid dad cure joke. <laughs> if there ever was one, we are officially off the rails, man. Okay. Oh yeah. So here's what I did find. There's not much there, right? In terms of the cure in Kansas, I think the cure of the Pope and all. It's the same story in different clothing. Yeah. Whatever. That's fine. It, it, it perpetuates the lore of Stoll. But what I did find is that there are some very direct connections to other musicians and Stoll, Kansas. So let's explain, everybody. First off, I'm starting with the one that's going to be the closest to your heartbeat. Uh, Have you ever seen the movie Nothing Left to Fear? I had to find out about this movie and everything about it. And sir, I have not seen this movie. (laughs) But man, I know now. A lot can, about it. Can I read you the first line of the plot synopsis? Please read this. Should I do it in a voice? Like a like a movie phone voice? <laughs> do you want to do the big voice here or do you want to do like the country countryman voice dude? No, I think you do the I think you do the Pastor Dan, his wife Wendy. Yeah, you do the the big the big voice guy. Their yeah, three children, Rebecca, Mary, and Christopher, have just moved to the small town of Stoll, Kansas, where Dan will serve as the new pastor. <laughs> In the congregation was a young Robert Smith 
See, I would be the worst screenwriter because that's just nonsense. All None right. That yeah, even works. That's not in there. But I will skip ahead to this part. The next day, Rebecca and Mary meet Noah at the festival. He takes them to get some lemonade at a nearby stall. Common ploy, by the way, ladies. Never, never follow a guy who claims he has lemonade. Only for Mary's lemonade to end up being drugged with a poison. Mary gets violently ill, tries to go home, but is kidnapped by Mason. She awakens to find herself tied to a post. This is long. While Pastor Kingsman tells her that she was chosen according to God's will, he then opens the gateway to hell, resulting in Mm. Mary becoming possessed by the devil. And this is like in the first few minutes of the film, I think. (laughs) There was this goth band I liked in college called Immortal Chorus, and they had a song called Mary, Are You Sleeping?, that's what I'm hearing in my head right now. <laughs> By the way, I can't handle creepy movies like this. I watched a movie, a, a Hallmark movie last night about a, a, a couple accidentally meeting and they go to Norway and there's a troll. And <laughs> instead of like a bakery, it's that the man, he was a skier and he had a horrible accident and he can't ski. <laughs> And I found out by watching it at the end, I was like, you know, I really love Hallmark movies. Like, I don't know who I am, what the hell has happened to me. And like, this is like the 40th anniversary of, of like Slayer's Show No Mercy today. And I'm talking about Hallmark movies. Like, I don't know. On a rock and roll podcast. Yeah, I don't know what is hey, listen, happening. I love the person you've become. I'm pro, okay, and I'm here. I'm here to well, support you. With I'll watch the I'll watch the violent, scary movies. I will not watch this movie though. This movie came out in 2013. It stars Anne Heche, and you're probably like, why are you bringing it up? Other than that loose connection to Stull, Kansas, that's a pretty direct connection to Stull, yeah. Kansas. But the reason I yeah. bring it up is because. Though I will say it was shot in Louisiana, I did look that up. It was not shot anywhere near near Kansas. Uh, it was made by a company. It was produced by a company uh, called Slasher Films. It was their first film. And it, you, you just want to guess who was at the helm of Slasher Films? That was Saul Hudson. Yeah, his name. yeah, Saul Hudson. You might know him as Slash <laughs> from the band Guns N' Roses. <laughs> yeah. And it was a terrific hit, critically acclaimed. No, right? it was. Everyone it, loved this movie. Critics had things to say about it, but it wasn't a claim. I, it, no one likes yeah. this movie. This movie is a nine. Yes, not 90, 9% on Rotten Tomatoes. So people who have heard this show before know that you and I go way, way back, and we, we actually used to work together. I, I don't, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, obviously we work together now, but we work together in a radio station, and we would get mutually distracted, right? Like, we would distract each other. Yeah, it's worse than how we do now in the show. Like, yeah. just, yeah, it would yeah. be so difficult to work based on the amount of things that we had to do. Well, and I've always gotten distracted easily. Part of it is my personality, right? And so, like, I have different yeah. focus hacks and things that I've tried. And recently, I tried this stuff, Magic Mind. Have you? I don't know if you've been targeted for this or seen it on the internet. Yeah, I've seen it, and I've been targeted for an ad for it, for sure. And I've just always been curious, because things like that have... I've seen before, but I always have seen this well, one. Well, and you're always like, is is it going to work? Is it good? What's really in it? And so I, they sent me some and I tried it. And it, so no sugar, it's nut-free, vegan, keto, paleo, all that stuff. It's friendly for that, right? And it's got matcha in it for caffeine. And then the rest of it is like 
just all natural stuff, right? So you've got lion's mane mushrooms, which mushrooms. <laughs> I mean, lion's mane mushrooms. That's not, that's real. That that's something else, right? Uh, yeah. And it, 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 several other things, but it, I really I found it really effective. Like it comes in a little bottle, and it's just like a green shot. You can like mix it into your coffee if you want to do it. It can help you cut down on your dependency on coffee if you're just constantly doing coffee. But what I did notice after doing it for a stint of five days that on the days that I did it, I was much. It was much easier to get stuff done. And when you're doing as much research as I'm doing and perusing as many websites and can get distracted as easily as I get distracted reading about, you know, Michael Jackson's house cats or whatever. Uh, it's, yeah. it's nice to have some focus. So they've been cool and said that we can send folks to them to try it for themselves. Uh, and they've given us a little, a little discount code. So if you go to magicmind.com slash bedtime stories uh, and use bedtime 20, uh, you can get up to 56% off your uh, subscription for the next 10 days. That's magicmind.com slash bedtime stories. The code is bedtime20. That should be easy to remember. And we put the link I've, in the description too. Yeah, absolutely. And 54% off, that's half off. 56% off. They don't oh, mess 56. around. That's the best. Yeah. <laughs> so get you, get your focus up. Uh, feel a little better uh, uh, about life in general and do it all with uh, natural ingredients. It's magic mind. Again, that's magicmind.com slash bedtime stories. The code is bedtime 20 and uh, find the link in the show notes. Now there's a wackier story with a connection to stole, right? I mean, that's just a guy making a movie about a legend. That's fine. And people make bad movies yeah. by accident. Things go wrong. I get it. Slash. I'll watch another one of your movies. Now, uh, Another musician with a connection to Stoll, though, is someone who we definitely, I said we had not talked about Fuel on this podcast. We have definitely never said the name Ariana Grande on this show before. Oh, my gosh. Before I knew anything about her or any of her songs or that she was getting engaged to Pete Davidson, this is a real true story. A friend of mine in L.A., we were talking one day, and I, we were talking about music, and he goes, hey, you know that Ariana Grande girl? And I'm like, ah, sure. And he goes, they pick her up and carry her like when she does something there's like a handler who would pick her up and carry her <laughs> like she was 12 to like where she had to go and so i always thought that as an artist or a musician i was like well surely she can't be talented and man i was totally wrong she's well, really a good singer she does need some specific handling though according to this story complex magazine december 13 january 14 issue has some interesting things to say about her trip to Stoll Cemetery. I pulled out these quotes. Will you read at least the first one? Quote, I felt this sick, overwhelming feeling of negativity over the whole car, and we smelled sulfur, which is the sign. I don't know if you guys know. It's the sign of a demon. And there was a fly in the car randomly, which I don't know if it drives you guys crazy. Uh, it does me, which is another sign of a demon. Did you know you that? Know. Did I you know that a fly no. in the car is a sign of a demon? I got to look that up. No. I did not know that. Sulfur is has some evil connotation or whatever. Yeah, no, it, it, it definitely so, does. But I would also say and, <laughs> the, the spoiler alert on this story is that someone had packed egg salad sandwich, left it out in the heat, and it was just, you know, everything got backwards. <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is okay. So I just want to read the rest of her quote because we have never talked about Ariana Grande on this show. I said, this is scary. Let's leave. I rolled down the window before we left and I said, we apologize. We didn't mean to disrupt your peace. Then I took a picture and there are three super distinct faces in the picture. Their faces 
of textbook demons. I'm very interested in what textbook she has on demons. I would like to see that. I don't know if we can get that at arianagrande.com or if we need to join our fan club or what. But there are more quotes. It's like demons. Are they demons holding like a physics book? Like a textbook demon? (laughs) Stinking physics. So hard. So there's there's other quotes collected in the show notes, but she basically goes on to say that over time she starts to feel haunted, like weeks later, and that she feels like and hears whispers and there's like rumbles and there's a, a, with some weird visions that happen, all sorts of craziness. It's totally wild. But the craziest part for me is the part about the photo. Do you have that quote? Yes. And it's sort of the opposite of what I told Brian at the beginning of the, before we even started today, is that my inbox has 999 messages in it. So this is a quote from, from Ariana Grande. Quote, the next day I tried to send the picture to my manager and it said, this file can't be sent. It's 666 <laughs> megabytes. <laughs> That's the best part of the story. <laughs> I wonder if Danzig's ever been to this cemetery. Like, I want to talk to Glenn that's, and ask Glenn. That's a good question. That's a very yeah. good question. I, I, I don't have a direct rock and roll connection through Danzig to the cemetery, but I do have another connection to Stall with a band that I think you probably have some feelings about. So the yeah. most direct rock and roll connection I could find is to Nash and Eddie. And I'm pretty sure you know these two dudes. They meet at Northwestern sure. in Chicago. It's the mid-'80s. They start a band, and they decide to name it after a line in a Parliament song. And Nash has a buddy named Steve, and Steve is just happening to get his his hands dirty in recording, um, and he will help them record an album. And that Steve is Steve Albini. The band is Urge Overkill. And if the only thing you know about Urge Overkill is that one song from that one movie, there's some killer rock and roll with this band. Well, Butch Vig gets involved. And, I mean, this band just knows the right people. They'll have a few college radio hits. Yeah. And I remember playing these those songs on the radio, and they get to, they get to open for Nirvana on the fucking Nevermind tour, which is totally crazy. Think about a, a year or so before this, Nirvana was opening up for the freaking Chili Peppers. <laughs> and so now Nirvana is headlining. And Urge Overkill... Is opening up, and it's bizarre because if you also think about it, like later Nirvana, who do they take on the road with them? The Boredoms, yeah. You know, they take Bobcat Goldquaid. Like Urge Overkill is in a very small group of like very interesting people that got to go out in the road opening up for Nirvana. And if you don't know anything about Urge Overkill, there is a great piece in the show notes uh, that Louder Sound did a few years ago that chronicles their rise and fall. And they're this like textbook example of a band who gets lifted out of a scene made popular by their pals because basically, I mean, they'll even say like, anybody that was a little avant-garde or like trying something new, like all of a sudden we were the hot property after Nirvana hit, right? And so they have all this opportunity come at them and they just can't keep themselves from imploding for a variety of reasons. But the moment we want to hone in on happens around this Nevermind tour. And they release an EP that they simply call Stoll. Right. And it's unclear why they chose to call this Stoll and talk about Stoll in the second track. But this becomes a really well-known part of the catalog because they're having trouble filling out the rest of the record. And they do a cover on it, the cover that I mentioned earlier, that's they thought was a joke because it was a Neil Diamond song, and it is the track one on the EP. 
And it turns out that a young filmmaker named Quentin Tarantino hears it and two years later will want to use it when he needs Uma Thurman to dance to a song in that pivotal scene in Pulp Fiction. It's another case of a weird band getting famous of something that isn't all that weird and then having to live with the blessing and the curse of having to play that song like forever not dissimilar to what happens the violent femmes or the butthole surfers or anybody else that got famous for a song that they never thought would be famous like radiohead's creep or kings of leon sex on fire like songs that were never going to make it onto a record that they thought were the worst songs that ended up being the songs that were hit songs and just accidentally but the stall ep has a picture from that cemetery that we've been talking about on the cover. And there is that song, track two, that you mentioned that's sort of about the cemetery, though the lyrics aren't really straightforward, except for the part that says, 40 miles west of Kansas City, down a country road like a lonely soul. But because they put this out, people that know them hear about Stoll and the rumors, and this is where I learned about Stoll, like, well, this time. Yeah, because when you say people learn about Stoll, people like their tour mates, the guys in Nirvana. And that is how... Kurt Cobain ends up in Stoll, Kansas. At some point, I read about this because of just the lore of everything about Kurt. So here is um, a quote from Eddie um, from Merge Overkill. Quote, before continuing on to the new infamous Dallas show without us, and we'll talk about that in a minute, both bands drove through Stoll, Kansas, as they wanted to partake of the legendary Haunted Crossroads celebrated by our song of the same name, we had just released the Stoll EP. It was a warm autumn day, and Cobain sat down against a huge oak tree by the church and joked, if there's a Satan, I want him to come and get me. No shit, that's what he said. And the next time I saw him, he had married Courtney Love. <laughs> I, can't, so I can't believe he committed really, that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't make that last part up. That's actually part of that's the quote. That's actually so. the quote. Uh, to be honest, the timeline for the story is weird. Uh, I would like to believe it's true, but he has details that don't mesh because he mentions no. the Dallas show and he mentions the Stoli P having just come out and the Stoli P doesn't come out until the middle of 92 and they're on tour right. with them and the Dallas show happens in October of 91. It's actually, it's October 19th of, of 91 and this show, we this is in the show notes, Kurt does look like he's not really all, you know, 100% for the show. And he jumps in the crowd during Love Buzz as he's trying to get back to the stage. It kind of looks like the security guard pulls his hair. And that's when Kurt hits him in the face with a guitar. Yeah. I, so Grohl tells this story in Storyteller, his book, if you haven't read that. And there's a piece in the show notes that chronicles it. But it's just total chaos, right? The crowd's oversold. Kurt's in bad shape and punches get thrown and then he punches Kurt in the face and then kicks him on stage. But as far as the stole visit, I, I mean, I don't know that we can discredit uh, this story based on it sounding like Eddie's version is a little mixed up in the timeline. Uh, I, I I think it probably happened. And there's a girl quote that backs up that this really happened. So regardless of when it it seemed like this actually did occur. Okay. So, I mean, we got from, no, the cure didn't go to Stoll, Kansas, but Kurt Cobain did. That's, yeah. I feel like we've made some progress, but. We, we talked about Count Chocula, Urge Overkill. <laughs> 
keep going. Like we're going to keep going, everybody. Well, this if all, you think if you hang on to your hang on to your handbags, this got me thinking about something else that's similar, like another rock and roll legend that doesn't have anything to do with Stall Kansas, but one that is like got some pretty direct similarities, and potentially it is the core birth of rock and roll rumor. It's like maybe the first rock and roll bedtime story. Yeah. At least if right. you were going to line them up on a timeline, right? Like maybe it didn't show up sequent like in the in the canon first, but if you line them up in terms of when they happen, I think it would be first. And I'm a little surprised we've never covered this in the show's yeah. history. And that's the lore about Robert Johnson and the Crossroads. And his name was Robert Leroy Johnson. That was his his name. He was born in Hazelhurst, Mississippi. And I love this because no one really knows. It was possibly May 8th of 1911. As a child, his family is driven out of town. And he ends up in Memphis where he starts to hear the music in the town. And he, um, I think this is sort of where he learns how to play harmonica first. Yeah. And, the, and he gets married young. He loses the wife and baby during childbirth. Her family, Sound familiar? Her family blames his association with blues music as to why the you know the daughter died and as messed up as that is some historians think that this is what will push him to basically become a wandering musician for the rest of his short life right and supposedly he was this the you know the lore of it is that robert johnson was not that good of a guitar player but he leaves town and comes under the tutelage of blues legends like sunhouse and ike zimmerman zimmerman is important to the story because he had a rumor of his own chasing him around he supposedly learned how to play guitar by hanging out in graveyards at night. <laughs> I also like to point out from seeing, uh, reading, just being a nerd about music or whatever, like I think Robert Johnson and a lot of other blues musicians borrowed a lot of their sounds and rhythms from Native American music. And um, for me, it seems like uh, maybe that's where the devil got involved there by stealing Native American music. But anyway, <laughs> the similarities between some of this is a little uncanny. Here's what I want to know. Did you learn to play guitar in a graveyard? I, I learned how to play in a graveyard with Beatles fake books. <laughs> and so my dad but, had a fake book, too, that was like, it was bound, it was like spiral bound, and it was like every page had a whole bunch of all those campfire songs you can think of. And I, that's how I learned to play everything, was it could just go in and yeah. G, C, D, G, D, E minor. That That's me. So imagine you don't know how to play guitar, and you split you come back to town and you miraculously gain the ability to play the blues. And that's what happened to Robert Johnson. So, yeah, this is where you slot in the legend, right? The legend, of course, being that Johnson wasn't a fast learner, that he made the, a deal with the devil. And that's how he got to be a good guitar player. Just like Ralph Macchio did when he decided to do the movie Crossroads with Steve I about <laughs> Robert Johnson. <laughs> the other reason that Ralph Macchio made the deal with the devil was the reboot of Cobra Kai. But we digress a million times during the podcast. According to the story, at least one version of it, Johnson was instructed to take his guitar to a crossroad near Dockery Plantation at the stroke of midnight. Well, you say Dockery Plantation, but depending on what version of this story you read, the, like the location changes all the time, right? Some people will say it's in Dockery. Some people say it's Hazelhurst where he was born. Some say it's in Beauregard. There, there are actual tourist attractions now where you can go to, quote unquote, the crossroads. And they're like in Clarksdale and Memphis. They're not anywhere near yeah. These places. Yeah. They're just tourists like, you know, come get your hat and a, a walnut with your name on it. <laughs> Wherever these crossroads are, once he gets there, 
He is apparently met by a large black man who is the devil who took the guitar and then tunes it. The devil played a few songs, then returns the guitar to Robert Johnson. Then that gives him the mastery of the instrument. And okay. that's two, the lore two that. things that have to be connected to this to make it lorific, right? Okay. First, Robert's going to end up dying at the age of 27. Uh, yep. So this makes him the inaugural member of the 27 club. So he has actually two things that sort of attach him to, to rock lore, right? And there are not a lot of historical records on this guy. I don't know. You know how many recorded songs he had? Yeah, the box said 29 songs. Yeah. And then eventually there's a couple of alternate takes, but originally there was 29 songs. Yeah. And, and just a couple photos. Yeah, there were That's like it. no photos of him until the 70s or 80s, and some archivists found they think they've traced it down to two or three. So if you Google and find a picture, you're only going to find two or three, literally. So you can imagine when he dies at 27, there is no autopsy report. We don't necessarily know. But what people have come to believe is that he was poisoned by a bartender or a a bar owner whose uh, wife he might have been dancing with, you know? Um, And dancing can mean all sorts of things. Uh, Most people think he was poisoned. So this all connects to this idea, right? That he, he... dies young there's a curse he has this this sunburst of talent that happens over a very short period of time very quickly out of and after a period in which he's like clearly not talented so those things all get wrapped up in this but the other thing you have to connect to this is that there's a song so like i it's almost like you forget this right like you hear the robert johnson the crossroads but i don't know that those things would have been connected had it not been for the fact that he wrote a song called the crossroad blues and in the early 30s is when that song he, he wrote that song while it doesn't explicitly tell this story it does give it a nice jumping off point in fact it's a little unclear but some historians connect this rumor about robert johnson to be actually concocted by white fans decades later sort of merging the legend the lore and the lyrics to other robert johnson and this is true and it's a mashup of other well-known tales. The first, of course, is the legend of Faust, which I didn't think we would ever talk about this on the <laughs> podcast. But man, listen, we certainly do go for the fences. If people have been talking about Faust for like uh, what six hundred years now. Doctor Faustus sells his soul to the demon Mephistopheles in return for worldly knowledge and pleasure. That's that goes all the way back to the fifteen hundreds, and it's been reworked over and over and over and reimagined more than. Crossroad Blues, I think. But the other piece of this, and oh my gosh, everybody, hang on. It's this other detail, is that this legend was actually not originally about Robert Johnson. It's a template rumor! It's a template rumor! It was about someone named Tommy Johnson, who is a contemporary of Robert Johnson, who's not related to him and lived longer than him. That is right. See, this is the this is the connection, right? Like, so Cure and the Pope, <laughs> Robert Johnson, Tommy Johnson. This is wild. According to his chief biographer, this only gets pegged on Robert because of that guy, Sunhouse, who was a blues musician who inspired Robert and Jack White. 
So read that quote. Uh, okay, this is from Scott Ainsley, uh, Ainsley uh, who's, who is like sort of known as the, the main guy, if you're going to learn about Robert Johnson. Quote, the Crossroads thing comes from interviews with Sunhouse, who commented to somebody way after the fact that Robert must have sold himself to the devil because he left the Delta and disappeared, and a couple years later came back and played circles around everybody else. And Sun's offhand remark about that was, quote, he must have sold his soul to the devil to be able to do that. Which is could just be a wonderful play on words and has nothing to really do literally. But why would we not have a podcast if we weren't saying, right, right. So literally let's trace this, right? So he says this in an interview, it gets recorded in the press. And at some point, somebody hears the story about Tommy Johnson and hears this guy say Robert Johnson, and it just gets transposed. Like, that's essentially it. And for the rest of rock history, we run around telling this story about Robert Johnson selling his his soul. And, and here's the thing. Uh, his grandson, Robert Johnson's grandson, has defended his honor for years, pointing out that the crossroads is actually about prayer. Because it does say, I got down on my knees at the crossroads. And he's like, he, uh, yeah, there's yeah. this piece in the show notes where he just like picks it apart. And he's like, it makes no sense that this would be about anything other than like cleansing your soul, not selling your soul, which is absolutely wild. This is really a great, like classic case for the show. Right, John? What an awesome letter, by the way. Thanks for getting us here. A whole lot of talk that people keep telephoning, playing the telephone game through history, right? It's amazing. It, it is It is really wild, and uh, I don't know how... I mean, this could have been the debut episode of the show, you know what I mean? We could have just started at the beginning and been like, here is, you know, but I mean, it's helpful to have, have all this in the arsenal already in terms of, you know, these this idea of rumors that get misassigned and reassigned, and, and yeah, it's wild. So yeah, thank you for being involved in the show. We are the story guys at gmail.com, uh, and if you, I don't know, are you thinking... Next year, maybe we do a we do a road trip to Stoll, me and you. Oh, I, I say let's do a, a road trip to Memphis, and then let's go to like that's and then go to Stoll. Right, let's I'm, do the. Do I'm in. We well, we'd already talked about Big Pink. I want to go stay in Big Pink because you can Airbnb. <laughs> that's not anywhere yeah. close. So, the, but those might need to be two different trips. But I'd love to go to Memphis with you, Brian. It'd be super fun. Oh, Lots yeah. of rock and roll stuff we could do. We'll do it. We'll do it. Um, we'll we go, go to the Bass to the- Pro Shop that used to be the Pyramid. <laughs> The pyramid, yeah. <laughs> I saw Matchbox yeah. Twenty in the pyramid in 1999. It was great. Guns uh, N' Roses was supposed to play the inaugural show there, by the way, and I, I did not get to see that. Oh, yeah. all right. Use your illusion tour. If you want to get involved in the show, it's wearethestoryguys@gmail.com. Patreon.com is where you can support the show. We really appreciate that. If you can throw us some bucks and get some extra episodes, and uh, you can also check us out on Instagram, backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. Uh, until next time, Murdoch, though, what should people keep doing? Stay away from the devil and don't steal tombstones, but keep telling stories. To hell with the devil! Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.